Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. They're the best women's soccer team in the world. So why aren't they paid like the best men's team? The U.S. women's national team is in France as it competes in the 2019 FIFA World Cup. On Monday, the team made it to the quarterfinals after they beat Spain. Game on the line. Rapino will strike. Rapino scores to US. Now, if the American women win the World Cup, the team will share $4 million. But that's $34 million less than the reigning men's World Cup champions, France. Today, where we live, we'll talk soccer and also find out why gender gap, gap gender gaps persist in women's professional sports. We'll look into the rise of women's sports from soccer to basketball to hockey with Quinnipiac University professor Molly Yannity. First, you have soccer fever. Did you play the game or did you look up to women like Mia Hamm and Abby Wambach? Join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, the next U.S. women's game is this Friday when it takes on another powerhouse, France. For more on the national team. Joining us via Zoom is Alicia Delgallo. She's editor and co-founder of Pro Soccer USA. She's covering the World Cup. She joins us from Paris. Alicia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So let's start with that game against uh, Spain. Um, Tell us about uh, that game. Was it the first time the U.S. women were really tested in the tournament so far? I think so. I mean, if you ask them, they've been tested the entire time. Certainly Sweden was expected to be their first test, but they they handled that team pretty well. So I think this was definitely the first game that was kind of intense and back and forth, uh, a lot of shift in momentum for them and um, a little bit scary at times. So tell us about uh, the women that are on the national team. Let's start with Connecticut native Alyssa Nair, the goalkeeper. She's got pretty big shoes to fill. Uh, Many fans of Hope Solo out there uh, can remember that she was a goalkeeper for many years. So tell us about Alyssa. Yeah, Alyssa is a really quiet person. She prefers to stay behind the scenes. Um, So uh, a little bit more difficult to get to know her, which is a, a stark contrast to Hope Solo. Um, but she's also faced a lot of criticism criticism because she's following in Hope's footsteps. And um, Hope and Brianna Scurry have openly criticized her as well. So that hasn't helped. Um, so when she made an error pretty early in the game last night, which led to the first or the Spain goal, um, kind of made everybody shake their heads and think that, oh, no, maybe they were right. But she kind of rebounded. And after the match, um, she and all her teammates and the coach said that she did a really great job rebounding, put it behind her, and they all trust her moving forward. Uh, another one to watch, uh, especially from last uh, yesterday's game, was Megan Rapino. Do you think this will be her last World Cup? Um, Likely, Yes. <laughs> I think it's going to be the last World Cup for for a couple of veteran players, but um, you never know. You know, Brazil has a 41-year-old player playing in the World Cup, so uh, there's always the chance. And is that something that is becoming uh, more common where you have uh, women professional players uh, in their 30s, uh, late 30s, uh, still competing? 
I don't know about more common. I think we've seen it over the years, but um, definitely with some of the countries that are still developing, I think some of their top players uh, play a lot longer because maybe the development uh, isn't quite there. The investment isn't quite there. So developing new players can, can be more difficult. Let's talk about um, how other countries are developing their women's team. I had mentioned at the top of the show, uh, U.S. women are ranked number one in the world. Uh, Spain, again, uh, putting up a good game against uh, the U.S. yesterday. Uh, When has their program really started to turn around? Yeah, really just in the last few years, there's been um, more investment at the, you know, in the local club level that has led to this um, increased talent, increased technical ability, um, and just growth overall of the women's game there. So um, to see them rise so quickly and other countries in Europe as well, uh, they're really starting to close the gap between the United States and, and the rest of the world. Uh, the U.S. still a strong favor favorites uh, to win. Uh, tell us about some of the other teams uh, that um, may be standing in their way, uh, starting with France. Yeah, so obviously France first. This is the biggest game. Um, a lot of people wanted to see this game later. Um, maybe in the final, but um, always was going to happen in this quarterfinal, and it is happening as expected. So there were some pretty colorful quotes from Rapino last night about how um, crazy she hopes this game will be and that it's a circus um, and other colorful language that she used. But yeah, this will be a big, a big game, big test, big crowd for them. And then moving forward, they could uh, have England in their way as well, which won the She Believes Cup back in February. And on the other side of the bracket, there there's Germany, along with some other countries that are performing well, like Norway and, and Italy um, and Japan that could advance. You know, when we're early later on in the show, we're going to be talking a little bit more about uh, the rise of, of certain uh, professional women's sports team. Uh, when you look at some of uh, the countries that are participating in the World Cup uh, this year, some of those countries at one time it was illegal for women to play soccer or football. Uh, tell us a little bit about some teams like Chile, for instance. Yeah, I mean, a lot of countries and not just countries like Chile that are still developing. Um, you know, in England and France, women were banned from playing football. So, um yeah all of these countries are really starting to now see increased investment in the women's game and still not not where it needs to be um and still fighting certainly for that but chile i think in in based on their performance against the united states in this tournament i think you know four eight years from now um if they continue the growth and the investment that they're starting to see could be could be a quality team uh, going beyond Europe, uh, Thailand uh, made uh, news uh, in the World Cup, especially uh, the story behind uh, the woman that is investing a lot in that team. Can you tell us about them, Alicia? Yeah, so they just, you know, they were really, really grateful to be making their second appearance in the World Cup and um, knew that they would have a tough road, knew that they would probably be blown out by the United States and by m- most of the countries that they faced. And so um, there was a video making the rounds on social media. I'm not sure if you saw it, but their investor um, kind of crying hysterically and hugging the coach when the team scored a goal, uh, even though it was in a game that they lost, just that they scored and um, was an emotional moment for them. So that's kind of what we see in these smaller countries that are now you know, starting to advance in the women's game. Um, just a lot of passion, a lot of fight. Um, and knowing that there's a lot of work still to do.
This is where we live. Uh, joining us via Zoom is Alicia DeGallo, editor and co-founder of Pro Soccer USA. She's covering the Women's World Cup uh, from uh, France. Uh, she's joining us uh, uh, from Paris uh, today as we uh, take a look at the U.S. women's national team, but also how uh, other uh, teams uh, from different countries are developing, getting better. Uh, in studio with me is Molly Yannity, assistant professor of journalism at Quinnipiac, uh, who was a former sports reporter. Uh, Molly, have you been watching uh, the World Cup? I have haven't missed a game. So tell us uh, what you've noticed about uh, this tournament. You know, one of the things that um, uh, kind of listening to, to Alicia talking about the, the countries that are developing, um, you look at Thailand, who has a, a private benefactor. Um, Jamaica, another one, Bob Marley's daughter, has has privately funded um, the, you know, the, the operation of Jamaica women's football. Um, and, you know, the coaches for Jamaica are all volunteer. This is a group that has barely practiced together, much less paid or played together. And we, we contrast that with the United States team, which, you know, travels all over the world for years at a time. But there's still an element of the private investment in U.S. women's soccer. Um, for example, Luna Bar, um, I had never had a Luna Bar until they made this sponsorship with the U.S., but, um, you know, this is a, a, a company that, that makes, uh, you know, what's the word? Um, protein protein bars. bars. Yeah, thank you. Um, and uh, they have done a private sponsorship with U.S. soccer to provide bonus money for the women because U.S. soccer isn't stepping up to to make this equal. Um, so while we can look like, oh, yeah, they're, you know, they're – They'll get there someday, you know, even at the top at number one in the in the world. Um, the U.S. still isn't there. Mm-hmm. Alicia, let's talk more about uh, the fight for equal pay. You know, a lot of attention on the World Cup now, but the U.S. women's national uh, team players actually have a suit against the U.S. Soccer Federation. Tell us why they're suing. Yeah, uh, they're suing for uh, what they are calling systemic gender-based discrimination uh, when it comes to pay and also inequality in treatment. So they're playing surfaces, training surfaces, and travel conditions. So this has been ongoing for years that they've been fighting this, and the lawsuit is bringing more attention to it now. Um, what they're looking for is, is fair and equitable pay, not necessarily equal pay to the men, because they are there's a lot there's a lot of different things that go into this. They have different collective bargaining agreements. They have different payment structures. Um, so equal may not be the best word uh, to use, but um, equitable and fair pay. Well, when we're um, saying equitable and fair pay, so what would that amount actually be? <laughs> well, that's the you know that's the question uh, that everybody's trying to figure out. Um, you know, we don't know what that amount would be. They're going to have to discuss that and argue that with with U.S. soccer and throughout this lawsuit. But um, we can definitely say it would be more uh, than what they're making now. And um, some main things would be, you know, charter flights for every trip like the men get, making sure that they don't play on artificial turf surfaces ever, uh, which is also something that the men get and the women have been fighting for. So things like that are more um, 
easy to define and quantifiable than actual dollar figures. Mm. Uh, when we're talking about pay, I'm also curious about uh, oftentimes uh, the corporations, uh, people who sponsor pay attention to uh, how many people are watching, but women have actually been setting uh, viewership records. Is that something that can uh, play a part uh, in these types of negotiations, Alicia? Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, broadcast rights and deals and the amount of money brought in from that is huge for for any organization. So um, the more that they draw, the more people that watch them, the more beneficial it is for their negotiations. Molly Yannaday, did you want to add to that? Yeah, the Wall Street Journal just came out with a, a piece last week um, uh, which actually had the the dollar signs of the fact that after the um, 2015 World Cup, in which the U.S. women won, um, for the next three years, the U.S. women have actually outpaced the men's program in profitability. Um, so 2016, 17, 18, um, the, the women brought in about $2 million more. Um, and you look back at the, the early years of the 2000s, and that gap was was very large. The men were bringing in close to twenty million dollars. The, the women less than five million. Um, but as that gap is closed, um, you know, we, we were talking specifically about what is the what is the figure we're looking at. Um, it's really just a matter of of who's contributing to that pot and what the percentages are out of it. So um, while the, um, the the TV deals and the sponsorship are huge, the the biggest chunk of of that twenty to five million dollars from uh, the early two thousands was actually in uh, ticket gate, um, and that has compl- that has flipped. I mean, not to that that with that gap, but the women are drawing more, have more in um, in arena, and as you noted, that um, that television and sponsorship has really come up. So they're really looking at the the percentage of the pie to get more than the the exact figure. And right. we should know. We're actually here with Rachel Bachman um, from the Washington Journal who wrote that story. <laughs> She's here. Um, in this group with us. Um, so we've talked at length about that story and um, that, you know, to clarify is ticket sales and or event, the events line. And there are other um, other streams of revenue that to consider that she didn't get into. Um, but in terms of events and ticket sales, the women have outpaced the men in the past three years. And they actually are pretty, um, they're much better than the men's team uh, when we look at uh, the, the men's rankings uh, uh, over the last few years. You know, you mentioned the 2015 game. We have this uh, great clip when uh, the winning uh, women's national team was invited to the White House uh, uh, to meet uh, then-President uh, Barack Obama. This team taught all America's children that playing like a girl means you're a badass. <laughs> I play that clip because, uh, you know, it's great to see uh, when uh, athletes are recognized uh, for their hard work. But I'm wondering, too, at that moment and also looking going further back to uh, the 1999 team, how uh, the performance, uh, the achievements by uh, these women athletes, how that has propelled and made soccer even more popular. Alicia, do we, are we seeing that? Have we seen that uh, since 1999? Yeah, I think uh, definitely the 99ers um, sparked that um, throughout the country and throughout the world. Um, But what they were hoping would be a revolution in terms of uh, equality and treatment and pay kind of fell off a little bit after that. So that's what the big point that this team and what they're calling themselves the 19ers are trying to make sure doesn't happen after this World Cup is that the conversation continues and... um, 
what everybody hoped would happen after the 99 World Cup does happen now. Molly, what are your uh, memories of that game? Ninety nine, yeah, ninety nine. You know, it's really season. funny that actually happened on my twenty fifth birthday, so that's a long time ago now. Um, and it, I'm, I'm thinking of that just in terms of what was going on in the United States at that time. You just had a wildly successful 1996 um, Olympics in Atlanta, where the U.S. women just owned everything. Um, uh, soccer, softball, basketball, um, the first beach volleyball competition. I mean, the, U, the gymnastics team. Um, the U.S. women just owned that Olympics. Um, and out of that came the WNBA, which was 19, 1997, 98. Um, and then you've got the 99ers. And, and it wasn't just in sports. This wasn't just happening in a vacuum. Um, you've got Lilith Fair going on and, and Cheryl Crow and Sarah McLaughlin on the cover. I know, right? <laughs> 25, like I said. Um so, th- so there was just really something going on. But um, you know, Alicia mentions it was kind of the revolution that didn't happen. And the things that didn't happen were completely out of the women's control. It was literally you know, two years later that we've got a terrorist attack and we go to war and that patriotism is wrapped up in so much toxic masculinity. And following that is, is an economic collapse where the investment dollars that had gone into all these different um, – uh, women's sports entities and and other women-led entities was pulled. That you know that that investment was pulled, um, and uh, it's nice to see. I'm, I'm not. I say it's nice to see. That sounds that sounds trite, but it's amazing to see what is going on right now. But everybody who was around for '99, it, it's almost like walking on eggshells. What exactly is going to happen next? Um, if there is another economic downturn, uh, can these leagues or um, entities sustain. Um, who is putting in that investment, and will it be a steady source? Um, so it can't just be caught up in the fervor of the moment. It has to be something long term. Uh, my in studio guest is Molly Yannity, assistant professor of journalism at, Qu- at Quinnipiac. She's a former a sports reporter. Actually, uh, wrote uh, for uh, uh, newspapers for 15 years. Yes. Uh, she's joining us today here on Where We Live as we talk about uh, women's professional sports. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. I want to thank our guests joining us via Zoom, Alicia Delgallo, editor and, co- and co-founder of Pro Soccer USA. She's been covering the Women's World Cup in France. Also, I understand you're a New England native. So, Alicia, thank you for joining yes. us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, Coming up, we're going to continue our conversation. We're going to look more broadly, uh, uh, again, in women's sports. And we want to hear from you. Uh, You can join our conversation. Here's the number, 860-275-7266. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Are you watching the Women's World Cup? The U.S. women's national team made it to the quarterfinals after beating Spain on Monday. And this Friday, the women will play France. Now, this may surprise some of you. We just talked about it. U.S. women's soccer games have generated more revenue than U.S. men's games over the past three years. Again, that's according to the Wall Street Journal. In 2016, women's games garnered or generated $2 million more in revenue than men's games. They're the best in the world, so why 
they paid less than their male counterparts. And when you look at women's professional sports broadly, why are they often seen as second tier to men? You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. My in-studio guest is Molly Yannity, assistant professor of journalism at Quinnipiac, a former sports reporter. So let's talk about all the money uh, and uh, coverage poured into uh, sports. Uh, the scales still tip dramatically towards men's leagues and teams. Yes, you are correct. But, um, you know, it's it's very much a microcosm of, of where we are in society. Um, so if, it, if, if we didn't see that, uh, I, I think that would be more surprising. Uh, when we look at uh, women's sports, I mean, what what sports really rise to the top these days? And then when we look at coverage, is the is the coverage still dropping? Sure. You know, um, uh, tennis has been the most progressive in terms of of pay equality. Um, the U.S. Open uh, was the first uh, Grand Slam to actually have uh, pay equality for um, the champion, and that actually was in 1973. Thank you, Billie Jean King. Um, the Australian Open in the late 80s actually paid more to the female champions than the men. Um, it ended up slipping the other direction a little bit, but they made a, a concerted effort for 2001 beyond that it was going to be um, equal. Uh, the French and, and Wimbledon held out until 2006 and seven. Um, uh, and uh, we could have a, a long discussion about the three sets versus five sets. Interestingly enough, uh, the reason women play three sets actually has more to do with the corsets in the uh, 1800s than it does of uh, anything about equality. Um, but then you could turn around and you look at something like the, the WNBA, um, where the median salary is $72,000. Um the uh, starting pay in the WNBA is $50,000. Um, the Euro League, the Women's Basketball League in, in uh, Europe, um, actually the starting salary is 100000 there. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, and then you turn around and you look at the NBA median, and it's 582000 for Okay, so um, a giant discrepancy there. And it's really funny because the first thing that I see and hear when I throw that number out. It's like, well, obviously, you know, the NBA is wildly popular. It's also significantly older. It gets tons more coverage. Um, and it's a different game. Um, but the, the the WNBA Players Union right now is in negotiations with the NBA, which is sort of the, uh, the overseer, if you will. Um, and uh, the the league is not asking for $572,000 a year for its players. It's simply asking for a bigger percentage of the profit pot that is there right now. Um, it's less than 50%. So of all the expenses, you take out the expenses, you take out um, what the owners of the teams are going to get. They, they want more of that money. Um, they're not asking for NBA money. They are not pretending that it's the same thing. Um, they're not pretending that they're on every single night. Uh, it's it's just literally about the percentage of that pie. Um, and when you break something down that way, that seems very fair to me. And, and I don't understand why uh, that's much of an argument. You know, that they're the ones with the leverage. They're the ones playing the game. Um, so uh, th- that's where we are. At that. And that's the same thing with golf. I mean, you look at just we just had the PGA Championship. The purse is $11 million. The um, LPGA championship just wrapped up. Um, young Australian named Hannah Green won it. Um, the purse for that was not even $4 million. Okay, so we're talking about, um, and, and it's literally, again, they want more of the pie. They're not asking for the same. They just want more of the pie. Um, so 
we, we can look at these numbers. We can look at the differences of the competition. Um, but there is a, a chicken and egg issue about the coverage and um, the airtime. Um, that, this is right when we get into my wheelhouse, too. Mm-hmm. So uh, I should mention that you also cover the Connecticut Sun for The Athletic. Yes. So when you're like, <laughs> are you watching the Women's World Cup? I'm like, are you watching the 9-2 and two Connecticut Sun? I mean, they are on fire right now. Um, I'm not their PR person. I am the journalist, though. Uh, it's just fun to watch. Okay. So let's talk about about that coverage. Um Beginning in the mid-90s, a couple scholars from USC, they're now USC and Purdue, um, began doing um, a longitudinal study that has come up every few years about the percentage of airtime on highlight shows on SportsCenter and in in the main networks in Los Angeles, and how much of those um, highlight shows are devoted to women's sports. So when they started this in the the mid-90s, it was about 4%. And we get to 98, right after the Olympics, right when the WNBA is starting and getting rolling, um, right before the, the 99 World Cup, we hit a peak. And those were about almost 10% in those highlight shows. Right now, we're back down to lower than where we started. We're, we're about 3%. Now, I, I can't definitively say, well, that means that there's only 3% of all coverage is devoted to women. Um, that's literally from the highlight shows. It, it's a good measure. Um, but so so does more coverage mean more eyeballs, more rear ends and seats? Does it mean more sponsorship? Um, looking at what we just talked about from from 1998 and the things that were going on then, at that point, yeah, it did. So the coverage was it was kind of just all working together in a cycle. So we've come back down. And, and, and again, this was the, the coming back down was partly due to a, a couple wars, a, an economic downturn. Um, but we're seeing more investment and we're not seeing the coverage follow that. Um, something that I think that, it, that is really positive, though, is that if I want to watch women's sports, I have more outlets to do so. Um, I can stream any number of of women's college athletics games. Um, example: I this just you know just this spring, I got to see um, Providence College's softball team play. I uh, you know we have a really successful rugby team at Quinnipiac. I, I can go to QuinnipiacBobcats.com and watch that. Um, I can watch regular season or preseason basketball games anytime. I, I can go to the computer and watch that. But it's not going to be in prime time. It's not going to be easily accessible, but they are there. And I think once, as we're starting to see some of those streaming numbers come up, we're starting to see a little bit more on the ESPNs and, and uh, ABCs and NBCs. Um, but uh, it, it's going to be that chicken and egg thing. I mean, the coverage will help with investment, but the investment will help with the coverage. And uh, getting some really talented uh, people to play. Uh, absolutely. I, we haven't had zero shortage of, of very talented people to play, especially in this country, for, for a long time. And I, and I don't mean that to sound, um, you know, only the United States has great female athletes. But the investment in women's sports in the U.S., despite its its shortcomings, it, is still pretty darn good compared to the rest of the world. Um but you mentioned for women's basketball, yeah. if they play uh, abroad, they're making more money than they. And they that's stay why here. most of them do. You know, I mean, most of them do. We have uh, um, 
just this uh, off se- just this off season. You know, the WNBA season is about five months, a little bit longer if you uh, if you get into deep into the playoffs. Um, so we're we're talking about you know, let's say I'm making seventy five thousand dollars a year. Good living. No one's going to complain about that. But then I can more than double that if I just go play in in Europe for one of these seasons. So I've doubled that. And 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 when you really think about it, athletes, uh, you know, their employment window it is really short. So they have to maximize this. So then, just this off season, we've seen some really serious injuries that are happening overseas, and there's just no break for the women. I mean, they aren't letting their bodies heal. Um, the, the most notable of those injuries is, is the returning MVP, Brianna Stewart, who was obviously a big star at UConn. Um, she led the Seattle Storm to the championship last fall, um, and she tore her Achilles in the uh, EuroLeague playoffs. Um, so she's out for this season. Um and, you know, it, that just on the surface, that looks like it's going to hurt the WNBA and viewership. Um, it actually hasn't. The WNBA has actually um, increased its viewership this season so far, um, even without its big stars not playing, because you also have a few more UConn players to drop here. Sue Bird, Diana Tarazi, both injured. Um, and uh, so, so, so they're, the faces that we're used to seeing aren't, aren't on the screens, but the, uh, the games are still drawing really well right now. Uh, Molly Yannity is my uh, in-studio guest here on Where We Live, assistant professor of journalism at Quinnipiac, a former sports reporter. Uh, she also covers the Connecticut Sun currently for The Athletic as we talk about uh, women's uh, professional sports and uh, also the future of, of of these sports. You know, before we talk about that, can we go uh, a little further back into history, Molly, when we look at when access to women's access to sports uh, really changed, and that was with uh, Title IX. Can we talk a little bit about that? That, yeah, 1972. At the time, um, I'm throwing around a lot of numbers. So, uh, at the time in 1972, um, only one in 27 uh, girls under 18 played sports. Um, in 40 years, that number had more than jumped 600 percent to 40 percent, and we're a little bit over that right now. Um, number of girls playing high school athletics is uh, more than three million. Um, and then we see, obviously, you know, going from high school to college, we see opportunities um, shrink, but um, yeah, because obviously we're getting into higher levels. But there are more than two hundred thousand uh, young women playing in college sports, and that's pretty, that's a, that's an amazing number. But here's something else: there are actually fifty thousand more opportunities for college men to play um, competitive sports. Uh, and and that's you know e- that's even after this you know nearly fifty years of progress, um, yeah. So we look at it coaching. You know uh, when Title IX was passed, there was zero money in women's college sports, so women held all the coaching jobs for in women's sports. That's not the case anymore. Gino Oriema here at UConn is, uh, um, or at least the last time I looked, was the uh, highest paid state employee. Um, that might be uh, a Coach Hurley now, but he he was and and deserves it. But um, now that there's all this money in in the top ends of it, we're seeing they're actually more than fifty percent male coaches coaching women's teams. Um, so so that's where there's still a fight. When we think about uh, the big money that's being made uh, and uh, earned uh, by uh, whether they're coaches or um, when we think about the kind of awareness uh, that a school like UConn gets when they've got mm-hmm. uh, championship teams, that money's not trickling down to the athletes. Uh, yeah, that's not why you had me here to discuss. Um, that is, that's a discussion for another day because that is a, 
a that's a that's an important discussion. I mean, we're seeing right now. I mean, California is trying to pass a bill that the college athletes would get would get some kind of stipend or, or more money. Um, and the head of the NCA, the president of the NCA, who I might add, makes more than five million dollars a year. Um, overseeing the NCA has, you know, sent out letters to all the universities in California saying that if uh, this bill passes, that the um, uh, California teams won't be eligible to compete in the championships. You know, so I, I'm going to just I'm going to step away from that one for the time being. <laughs> when we think about uh, the number again of girls and women that are playing sports uh, because uh, by the time uh, college rolls around and depending on where they go, um, oftentimes uh, there aren't a lot of pathways for women to continue to be uh, professionals. Uh, for sure. Um, the, uh, the There are just not as you know, and we if we see going from three point two million high school to two hundred thousand college, I mean, it's even, you know, we're talking, you know, maybe 10,000 spots. And, I, and that's, a you know, that's a, just a number I'm throwing out. I can't even imagine there are that many. Um, the and, and that's with any, you know, the, the higher level you get, the fewer spots there are going to be. But but really interestingly, we saw, you know, Megan Rapinoe at the beginning of the World Cup having a conversation with the, in a in a um, in a press conference setting um Kind of letting the press have it about, you know, the sort of like, oh, the little girls are watching you kind of thing. And, you know, little girls looking up to you. And and she kind of went off about the idea that, you know, there are, what, 15 spots on the U.S. Women's World Cup, on the U.S. Women's National Team. She's like, chances are your kid's never going to get there. You know, and and, and maybe that should not be parents goals maybe you let kids have a good time and 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 you know so that there she she had to, she was very eloquent in the way I'm not being right now but it was just you know here's this whole thing but then a couple days later Nike comes up with this commercial that that I am going to admit gave like I got goosebumps where like you know the players are holding the little girls hands and running around the 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 pitch and and I'm like so on one hand Rapino's over here saying your kid's not going to get here but boy Nike's sure going to sell you that idea Right. I mean, so we've got this sort of the, the capitalistic nature of, of 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 using these players for that. And, you know, in Rapinoe's a Nike, a Nike person. She knows this. But so we've got these conflicting messages, which, you know, as as the the critical sports fan, I'm left just going, ah, <laughs> uh, because you cover uh, the Connecticut Sun when uh, the games are going on or the stands full. Are people excited uh, to watch the WNBA here in Connecticut? And does the popularity of UConn's women help uh, propel that excitement? You know, um, the Connecticut Sun was the the first non NBA affiliated team in the WNBA. So, um, gosh, I want to say 2002. I, I might be off on that, but I believe 2002. The Sun became that they're owned by um, the Mohegan Tribe um, and and operated by it. But at the time, all of the other teams were affiliates of an NBA team. So they were kind of this great experiment. Great experiment. They play in Mohegan Sun Arena, you know, in a casino, basically. Um, and uh, they were successful right out of the gate um, with uh, some pretty, um, you know, some pretty big personalities like a, a Katie Douglas from Purdue. But yes, the UConn, uh, when, when they play teams that have a lot of UConn players, like a Seattle Storm with Sue Bird and Brianna Stewart, um, there is a notable difference. Um, they draw about 6,000 a game, uh, which, is, which is pretty good. Um, so like the lower bowl is completely filled. Um, and it, it's a it's a good, quaint environment. It's not going to be 20,000 of the NBA, but no one's expecting that. That's that's not the expectation. Um, 
when the Washington WNBA team first started, they were drawing 12, 15,000 a game. And then they weren't being, then they weren't successful. And that just plummeted. Um, they now are successful again. Um, they have uh, a, a superstar in Elena Deladon who went to Delaware. Um, here's this just beautiful, amazing basketball player. And people go see her. But then the, the team kind of flubbed it. They were playing at George Washington University. And then that the arena was being used for something during the NBA finals. And so they had to play the finals in at George Mason, which felt like a million miles away. Um, so the owner finally, uh, uh, they just built a new um, arena just for them, and it's really small. So it's packed. But, I mean, it seats, you know, seven, five, 7,000 people, but it's absolutely packed, and they have demand to get tickets now. And, and that's, you know, that's kind of like the club with the line outside, right? You know, people want to get in. Oh, before we head to break, just going back to UConn's women, uh, this state is, uh, I guess, unusual when we think about March Madness and the popularity of, of UConn women when you compare them uh, to other teams. Are there lessons uh, that uh, we can learn uh, to help, uh, you know, uh, catapult some of the popularity f- for these other women athletes? You know, that's a, that's a hard one because I, UConn's success is just unprecedented. And yeah, I guess you could say, sure, go out and win a hundred championships, and and the the people will follow. Um, you know, it's it's an absolutely rare and beautiful thing that that has gone on at UConn with women's basketball. But the field hockey team's really good. Um, Quinnipiac women's basketball's been in the tournament the last four years, made it to the Sweet Sixteen uh, two years ago, um, and that success we've seen the crowds come up. Um, you know, I, I also think Quinnipiac and, and Yale women's hockey, uh, they, um, they're very successful, but the crowd's not there at all. Um, so we're kind of back to that promotion and coverage thing. If you're winning, people are going to promote and cover you, right? Um, so I, I think the lesson is win and people are going to come. But, um, but that, isn't, that shouldn't be an expectation because literally half of, of, half of the teams have to have a losing record, right? So, um, I, but I think that when you have a, a culture and an expectation to win, um, some, some pretty remarkable things happen, and people respond. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today, Molly Yannity, assistant professor of journalism at Quinnipiac, a former sports reporter. Speaking of hockey, we're going to talk about that right after the break. We're going to hear from a Connecticut native. She still lives here. She's a member of the U.S. national women's ice hockey team. But Melissa Samuskevich has joined 200 other players who are sitting out from playing in the professional league this year. We're going to hear why after the break. And you can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about women's professional sports with my guest, Molly Yannity, professor of sports journalism at Quinnipiac University. Now, according to USA Hockey, girls hockey is among the fastest growing youth sports in the country, and there have been nearly 80,000 female players over the last decade. Melissa Samuskevich is one of them. Melissa started playing on a boys' hockey team before her passion led her to play high school hockey at a Minnesota prep school. Today, she's a member of the U.S. Women's National Hockey Team. And the Connecticut native and former captain of the Quinnipiac Bobcat women's hockey team joins us now by phone. Melissa, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. So I understand that you and your team won gold this spring at the International Ice Hockey Federation Women's World Championship. First, congratulations. What was it like to represent the U.S.? Thank you. Yeah, um, it was an unbelievable experience. Um, 
I've been on national teams before, U18, U22, so it, you kind of get prepped for that throughout the the system and whatnot. But um, this was definitely like the highlight of my career. Um, it was so awesome to represent my country and just to be with all of those veteran players that I've looked up to for so many years. Um, it was definitely unforgettable for sure. Uh, who are some of the players that have been uh, your mentors? Um, Casey Bell and me, Brianna Decker, Amanda Kessel, uh, Hillary Knight, Kendall Coyne. There's so many I could go on. <laughs> so you say you've been playing with the national team for a few years since high school. That might be surprising for uh, some people to hear. So how do you get to be that that level? Yeah, so it's it's a process. So you go through several camps. So there's one out of Connecticut. There's one out, and then you move on to one in New England. And then from there, you move on to one, um, a national camp for all the girls all over the country. And then from there, um, you get invited to the U18 invite camp. Um, So it's a lot of camps. It's a lot of hard work, but it's totally worth it. Mm -hmm. So you graduated from Quinnipiac this past spring. Uh, you're you're on the U.S. Uh, national team for ice hockey. So have you always been interested in playing professionally? Um, yes. I mean, it was always a dream, but, like, growing up, we didn't really have the dream. Um, we had the CWHL um, later on as I grew up. I wasn't, but I didn't really know much about it just because it wasn't, like, a huge, sustainable league. Um so yeah, I mean now now I do, and now I'm looking for professionally one day. But um, yeah, we want to push that for younger girls growing up. You mentioned the CHL. You're talking about the Canadian Hockey League for Women, which just folded uh, in 2015. There was a National Women's Hockey League formed here in the United States. Uh, you were drafted to play uh, for the Connecticut Whale, uh, but you're taking a gap year. Tell us why you've joined other professional women players and taking time off. Yeah, um, we want it, we want to, our players association is about 200 plus of us um, that decided to take this gap year, and what we're looking for is a sustainable league, um, kind of, and that means like just with re, with resources, like we need the clear tape, the training, the medical staff, um, just like from our team, um, but that goes along with that is a salary too. Uh, salary where we don't need another job and hopefully one day we can get that and that, that would make it awesome for younger girls like I said to grow up and with a league like that and to have a dream to play in it one day. Mm. Uh, when you mentioned that uh, the salary you want a, a better salary so that you can play and also that girls can uh, dream that they can be part of a professional league one day without holding multiple jobs what is the, the current salary for a professional player today? Um, it's not very much. It's, I mean, I'm a rookie going in, um, so I don't know the exact numbers, um, but it's, I think it's around less than 10000 a year. So two to $10,000 a year. That's mind-boggling uh, when you think about uh, how much is spent on marketing uh, certain uh, professional uh, sports teams. Uh, uh, when people hear that, I'm sure they're probably pretty surprised. Yeah, certainly. Um, it's kind of crazy. I mean, a lot of my teammates need other jobs and whatnot to support themselves. 
Is everyone in the women's ice hockey community in agreement to take this gap year? I mean, how do you uh, uh, deal with conversations maybe on uh, with teammates on the national team who may be opposed to that idea? Yeah, so a lot of, so most of the, all of the national team girls are on board. Uh, but of course, there's going to be people who think otherwise. And that's great. I mean, especially since it's such a big topic, you kind of need the controversy to get through and make it such a a big moment, you know, whether whichever way our league and our game ends up going. Um, and people have signed for the NWHL, and that's great for them. If that's what they believe, then awesome. Um, but as a squad, we don't really think that, and that's, that's just how it's going to go, I guess. But hopefully one day we're all on the same page. I understand back in 2017, the National Women's Ice Hockey Team uh, threatened a boycott for living wage, and, and they got the living wage. So do you look at that as a model? Yes, um, definitely. So I'm very lucky to come into this professional league um, out of college and have such great veterans that have been through the league and understand what we want and what we need. They're so knowledgeable. Um, so I've been listening a lot to them and when when that when that happened um, in 2017, we were all the younger girls were notified, even if we were on the team, just to kind of put the message in our head and kind of to tell us what what was going on, and that was awesome. But yeah, I mean, it that that part is a huge part for us as well, um, and that's another step for our game. Uh, as I mentioned, there is a, a National Women's Hockey League. Uh, this is the the gap year that you're taking and not playing uh, with uh, one of the teams, the Connecticut Whale. Um, is it your hope that maybe the NHL will back up professional women's uh, ice hockey players and have something similar to what the, the WNBA is? Yeah, I mean, that would be sweet. That would be awesome. Um, I'm sure we would be very successful if that happened, but... Um, that's a two, that's two sided. So they would they would need to want to do that too, and maybe one day they would. Um, that would be unbelievable. Um, but for now, we just are kind of uh, looking for sponsors, looking for support from other associations and whatnot. Um, and until then, we're just going to keep battling it out. And then, uh, what's for, what's in your future as you uh, sit out again uh, for this gap year um, and not play for the National Women's Hockey League? Uh, are you be playing internationally? Um, I might be. Um, I'm kind of to be determined on that right now. Um, but it would be an awesome experience to go overseas and play. But yeah, like I said, right now I'm to be determined. Uh, hopefully, soon I find out. Well, Melissa Samuskevich, again, is a Connecticut resident, a member of the U.S. Women's National Ice Hockey Team, and a former Quinnipiac Bobcat. She joined us today uh, to talk a little bit about uh, what led her to hockey and also what her hopes are for playing the game in the future. Melissa, thanks so much for joining us here on Where We Live. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I want to turn back to my in-studio guest, Molly Yannity, professor of sports journalism at Quinnipiac University. Uh, Molly, you know, what's your response when you hear uh, Melissa talk about how she and uh, uh, almost 200 other uh, professional ice hockey players, uh, women players, are sitting out because they want to see a sustainable league? My, my, my first response is, yeah, that's a Quinnipiac student. Well-spoken, thinking of the future. I'm really proud of her. She, she is something to watch play, too. Um, you know, a, a couple different thoughts beyond that. Um, first, she, you know, when in this conversation you had with her, the, the first thing she starts talking about is, you know, to get to this level, 
Um, she attended all these different camps. And that takes investment. That took that took investment from USA Hockey. So, you know, put a, a check in the plus side here. Um, the, the next part is the, the NHL has had its collective bargaining issues with its own players over the last decade. Um, I... I I'm hard-pressed to be optimistic about the idea that the NHL does get on board with this. Um, but I think it would be solid. I mean, the, the numbers that you presented at the beginning of uh, your conversation with her, of, you know, the, fa- the fastest-growing uh, women's or girls' sport, um, um, along with rugby, I believe that is, um, that's exciting. And, and there are people, you know, I, I'm going to be a completely honest. After living on the West Coast for most of my adult life, um, I was not – much of a hockey fan. And honestly, I just didn't know a lot about it. Um, I got to Quinnipiac um, in 2013, and there are no two ways about it. You like hockey or you get out of here. So, um, I, I mean, and and the thing that drew me was the the women's team. I mean, the, the men's team at Quinnipiac is, is wildly successful. They are fun to watch. But, man, this women's team was they're flying around. They're exciting to watch. In in this this core group of players, several of them played in the um, uh, NWHL and uh, the um, Canadian League that just folded. Um, so because they went to these places, I started following them. Um, it's you know Melissa mentioned uh, you know that she wants to leave something behind. This is they're doing this for the little for the girls. I think she'd said something like along that line. And you know, imagine coming out of college and saying, I'm gonna put this on hold, my my dream here, I'm putting this on hold because I have something that is bigger to take care of. That takes a lot of strength and commitment. Um so I commend her and the the um the players in the union. Um, she mentioned that uh, this brings about controversy. That controversy brings about a conversation, and that needs to be happening right now. Um, so I, I genuinely wish him the best. I, my, my outlook right now is probably not great. Uh, thinking of the, the, of you know, the investment cycles and, and what will happen, but, um, but the product is there. The players and the product are there. I want to thank Molly Yanade for joining us. Again, she's sports, uh, a professor of sports journalism at, uh, journalism at Quinnipiac, also a former sports reporter, and she covers the Connecticut Sun for The Athletic. Molly, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Thanks to our technical producer, Kion Wolf. You can learn more about the show at wmpr.org slash where we live. You can also download our podcast. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>